All right. Well, it's been a few weeks. We've, we've taken a few weeks off from our Acts series. The, the, only, the only thing better than taking like a year and a half to go through a book of the Bible is just to keep extending it longer uh, by, by putting in you know, different gaps and taking weeks off. So it has been a long journey through the book of Acts. This is, today will be our 44th week uh, in the book of Acts, but we are getting close to the end. Uh, if all goes to plan, we only have four more sermons in the book of Acts, which is just pretty, pretty crazy uh, that we are coming to the end. This is the longest book of the Bible that we've ever gone through as a church, 28 chapters, quite lengthy, but I think it's been a real gift to us as a church, and uh, I'm already feeling nostalgic about being done with it and thinking about when we can go through it again. So um, yeah, but four, four weeks left, and just in getting ready for today, I've been reflecting this week and thinking about this whole book, um, this whole story that we've seen of, of the early church of Jesus, you know, the first 20, 30 years of the church of Jesus. And, and I think even just looking at it from a zoomed out, big picture view, there's some things that we can benefit from and, and learn from as, as a church just in the structure. So if you remember the beginning, the first few chapters of the book of Acts, it's really exciting and fast-paced, and there's all this growth, right? Thousands and thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus, and, and there's this real vibrant excitement going on within, within the first few chapters, and you get a strong sense of that. And then in the middle of the book, as people start to go out from Jerusalem into these surrounding areas and regions, there's this sense of um, development and expansion and um, kind of a, like a maturing that's happening. Like the church, they deal with some controversies. They have to work out some things in their community. But there's this like steady growth, steady expansion and development of, of this is what it looks like to belong to Jesus. And then as we've been here at the end of the book, it's sort of slows down, and it's kind of this repetitive story over and over again. Paul is imprisoned, and he just goes through this series of legal trials, basically, and we just, we just follow him as he gets closer and closer to his trial in the city of Rome. And so why is that helpful for us as followers of Jesus, as a church? How does that structure even help us? And, and I think we need all three stages of, of this view of the Christian life, like as a church and as individuals, that, that these are actually um, part of, of who we are as we follow Jesus. Like we need the excitement of new believers, of people who are coming to faith in Jesus and there's this vibrant excitement, right? So we're gonna, that's why we're celebrating baptisms, right? Because it's this um, symbol or it's this, this way that we mark the beginning of someone's journey in following Jesus, right? And they're declaring publicly, my life, my old life is, is passed away and I have this new life in Jesus. I've been transformed and this baptism is my declaration of that reality. And that's exciting and we celebrate it. And, and we also need in the church that steady development and maturing, right? And we, we want to see that in people's lives. We want to see them growing as disciples, learning things about Jesus, learning what it means to faithfully follow him, working it out in every part of 
our lives, and we want to see that happening not just individually but as a community as well. And we also need endurance, right? Much of our life of following Jesus is repetitive, and it requires us to um, just to hang on and to hold fast and be faithful to what we already know, right? It's walking in the ways that we've learned and, and that we know. And, and all of that is it's this life of becoming rooted in Jesus, becoming conformed, looking more and more like who he is. And, and that's the life of, of following Jesus. And that's the life we want to see happening within our church, all these different things happening, but ultimately it's all pointing to we want to build our life in Jesus as individuals and as a community. So moving in closer to what we're looking at in Acts 23 and 24, I want to just take a minute and talk about what we did last week. We had our family camp, uh, Wood Street Chapel, this uh, church in Fortuna, actually the church that I grew up going to they invited me to be the speaker for the family camp. We said, we can go out there uh, and our church can come. And only the Sanborns came, uh, but everybody else had different stuff going on. So uh, that was really, it was just a really excellent time. Just a beautiful, for me, like the same people, like this one woman who was my Sunday school teacher in first and second grade, she was like teaching my kids about Jesus because they had a little kid time. And it was just like, wow, she is still doing this after, you know, it's been 30 years, over 30 years since I went through her class. She's still doing it. And I get to teach, you know, the the rest of the church about Jesus. And it's like this bearing fruit of, of the things that she had done. So that was really beautiful to celebrate that and and just to see different people that I grew up with. Um, the guy uh, who is the pastor there now, he was like a little kid in that church, and now he's the pastor. Just, just a beautiful thing. So we, we had an awesome time, and and what I taught on at the um, in during just the chapel times we had there was something uh, I've taught on here called the four G's. And some of you have been here when we've taught through. The four G's, these are four eternal truths about God that have this bearing on how we live in our everyday lives. So, so the, the premise is that if we, um, if we learn and we remember who God is, like what his character is and what he's like, then it's going to have some kind of impact on how we actually live our lives, right? So for example... Um, if we believe God is gracious, right? Like his love for us is because he is gracious, not because we've done something to earn his love or we performed in a certain way or because we've lived a good life, but his love for us is because he's gracious. If we, if we learn that and we understand it and we believe it, it's gonna change the way we think about our life. Like we won't be as concerned about proving ourselves and trying to get God's approval and trying to get the approval of other people. So, so that's what I was teaching on there last week. And um, so, so we, can, we can look at that f- kind of as a formula because God is this, because he's this way, because this is who he is, now I can live like this. I can live in the reality of that truth of who he is. And today we, we see that 
truth, or you know, I don't want to call it a formula, but we see that lived out in the life of the Apostle Paul because he is enduring again more danger, another trial. He has to give another defense of his faith in Jesus. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 23, starting at verse 12. We're going to go all the way through chapter 24, and we see uh, in chapter 23 this, this truth. Because God is in control, because God is sovereign, I can endure. I can hold fast to him. I can, I can look forward to the future and not be afraid because God is in control. So we'll start by looking at this truth. God is in control, and then we'll see in Paul's life how that works itself out. What's the reality of that in his life that God is in control? So I'm going to read Acts 23, starting in verse 12, all the way through 20, chapter 24. So it's a long passage. It'll be up on the screen. If you're using one of the Bibles from the table in the back, it starts on page 932. So Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, At the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge For which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. 
On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they called a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias The tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And some days, Felix, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father... We've just read a lot of scripture, but we want to be reminded that this story is is not just a historical record. It is the inspired, breathed out word that you have passed down to us today. And I pray that you 
would apply what is here to our hearts and that we would see you as sovereign over all things, that we would trust you, that you would help us in our, in our anxiety and our fears and our doubts in our wondering, do you care about us? Do you know what we need? And that you would show us that the answer is yes and amen through your son Jesus. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. So first, we want to look at the truth here that God is in control. God is in control. So just to give us a reminder, because it's been a few weeks, what happened before, starting in chapter 21, is that Paul was arrested, right? He comes into Jerusalem. He brings a gift from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. He is arrested on false charges. There's this big riot um, that he didn't start, um, and he's gone through this series of trials, examinations. Here's Here's what Paul did, here's what Paul did, and he has to just repeatedly talk about what happened, what's actually been going on. So we've seen the riots, we've seen the speeches, and there's been lots of meetings and conversations, but, but really nothing has happened yet. We're still in Jerusalem, Paul's still in prison, the Jews are still mad, the Romans don't know what to do. This is kind of the, the scene that's going on there. No verdict has been given, the sense that you get is that the Romans know that Paul is innocent of the charges, but they don't know how to deal with it. So, so this continues, and, and as they're in limbo, as Paul is waiting in prison for what the, what the Roman officials are going to decide what to do, the Jews get proactive. They say, we are going to kill this guy. We, we have a plan. Uh, Forty guys take this oath. And they say, we will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. And we are going to be the ones who make it happen. They go to the, the chief priest, the council, and they say, and it's, it's probably not to all of them. This wasn't like an official meeting, but they went to the ones who they knew would buy off on it. And they say, we, we made this vow. We are, we're going to kill this guy, and they, all you have to do is ask the tribune for Paul to be re-examined. So you're going to say you have to ask him more questions, and then we'll kill him while he's on the way. Great plan. And, and the way they make their vow, um, it's like this, if they, if they don't fulfill the vow, they'll be accursed by God. And I don't know how they got around the whole, like, we're going to murder someone um, for God, like, I'm not really sure uh, what their logic was here, but they're clearly thinking they're in the right and that things are so bad that they're justified in making a vow to God to do something that God says you can't do. Um, but they, that's, their, that's their logic. So we just want to murder this guy, and they're committed to following through. If they don't do this, I guess they just die of starvation, and 40 of them do it. So there's a, a large contingency of people. <laughs> I just, you know, just think of the reality of 40 people hating you so bad they have vowed not to eat or drink until you're dead. That's just like, that's, that's kind of scary. <laughs> so, uh, so what happens here? They make this vow, they make the plan. It seems like it's going to happen. But Luke, who's the author of Acts, says, 
Paul's nephew somehow finds out about this plot and he goes to Paul and he tells him, here's what's happening. And Paul says, hey, we should talk to the boss here because this sounds pretty serious. So let's find out uh, what he has to say. So, and this nephew of Paul is, is probably pretty young. It says that Lysias, the Roman tribune, takes him by the hand. So he's probably pretty, pretty young. And, and he says, what, what do you have to tell me? Here's the plan. They're going to do this. And, and so um, the, the Roman official, he hears of this plan. He takes immediate action. We're going to send Paul to the city of Caesarea. There's a higher court there. The governor, Felix, uh, is there. He can examine Paul. And, and so in order to make sure that Paul doesn't get ambushed on the way, we're going to leave at night, 9 o'clock at night, and we're going to send 200 foot soldiers, 70 guys on horses, and 200 spearmen. So it's almost 500 people are going to escort Paul out of the city of Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea. I mean, that is a crazy bodyguard situation. Almost 500 Roman soldiers. Uh, I mean, I think Paul would, he was probably like feeling kind of good. Like, they had to have 500 people take me to the next city. Like, Nobody gets an escort like that. So, so, so that's essentially everything that happens in chapter 23 that we look at. Now, if you read the passage or if you were listening carefully as I tried to read that all and get it correct, you, you might notice something that from the beginning of that passage, chapter 23, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, there is a conspicuous absence. Who is not mentioned. God. There's no mention of God, the Lord, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, nothing. There's not even a hint. The only hint there is is that this is a religious issue, the law of the Jews, as mentioned in the letter that Lysias writes. Paul is in great danger, and you know it's serious, when, when the unbreakable vow has been made by uh, 40 guys. This is, this is not a political issue. This is extreme violence. And where is God? He's not mentioned one time. He's not even hinted at. Now, does that mean that God has abandoned Paul? Does that mean he's been left, left to himself? And and that's a, it's a reasonable question. I mean, it's a, a long portion of Scripture. There's a significant part of the narrative that's told there, and we don't even get a hint of God. But I think we need to remember what happened right before this, that after Paul had made his defense and they were trying to kill him another time, uh, a theme here for Paul, that, that as Paul was taken back into prison in Acts 23, verse 11, um, it says that the following night after the trial, the Lord stood by him. And we looked at this a few, few weeks ago. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, so as Paul is facing this great danger, he could remember the promise that was given to him. I am with you. I am with you. I'm with you every step of the way. And so Paul knows God is in control here. God is sovereign over everything that's happening to me 
in my life right now. All this, this plot to kill me, getting transported, all this stuff, Paul's remembering this promise that God gave to him. I'm standing by you. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you every step of the way, all the way to Rome. You, you need to know that I'm going to be with you. Now, Tony Marita, he's uh, this pastor and theologian. He says, God's name is not mentioned anywhere in this passage, but his fingerprints are everywhere in the story. How did, the, how did this young man, this nephew of Paul's, how did he hear of the plot? I mean, was he just like going to the market and he heard these guys like, hey, we're all going to kill Paul tonight, so, you know, if you want to come watch. Like, how did he know? Because God is in control. That's how he found out. Why did Lysias, the Roman official, why did he respond in such an immediate, quick way? Because God is in control. Because God is watching over Paul. How did Paul end up before Governor Felix in Caesarea, because God is sovereign. God is in control. Now, I know that you and I, we struggle to believe this, that God is in control. We, we look at the moment we're in, right? We don't remember verse 11. We're just thinking of verses 20, 12 through 23, right? We are in this moment where everything is messed up. Everything is going wrong. People are plotting to kill us. And, and we don't see God in that, right? We don't see evidence that everything is so chaotic, everything is so confusing in that moment of what we're experiencing that we don't see him there. And we start to feel like God is not in control here but does that mean that he's not there just because we don't have he's not experienced immediately does that mean that he's not working does it mean that he, does it mean that he doesn't have some ultimate purpose that he is working he is in control and and when we see his fingerprints when we remember his promises we need to remember who is god who is he and we have, to, we have to recall, we have to discipline ourselves in this way. God is in control, and I know he's in control. He's, he's always been in control. He's always been sovereign, and, and we can't just look at the moment that we're in to determine that or to be reminded of that because you'll lose sight of, of God's sovereignty in that particular moment. Here's an example uh, in another passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And we read a verse like that, and that's just one of so many verses that speak of God's sovereignty, his control, his authority, his ruling and reigning over all things. And we read that, and it brings us that perspective that we need. God is in control. What does he say? Remember 
the former things of old. Remember who I am. Remember what I've already done because I am God and there is no one like me. There's no one who rules and reigns over all things. I'm the only one. There is no other. There is none like me. And so when we are in those situations, when we're in those circumstances, we're, we're in that chaos, right? When the world is without form and void, remember who God is. Remember that he is in control. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite authors, he says, to say that God is sovereign means that no situation, location, and relationship that you and I will ever find ourselves in is outside of his wise and careful rule. So this is true for Paul as he's waiting for his next trial, and it's true for us. The same God is in control. As he was for Paul, he is for us. Our God is in control. So remember what we said at the beginning. Because God is in control, there's, there's impact, there's effect on our lives. So because God's in control, I can endure, I can be faithful, I can hold fast. And it's not because I'm strong. It's not because I have great willpower or because I'm more disciplined than other people. The reason I can endure, the reason I can hold fast is because God is sovereign and he cares about me and he's taking care of me. And we see this play out in what happens next in the story of Paul as as he comes to the city of Caesarea, he meets with the governor and he waits. And what's he waiting for? For the people, the people who accused him in Jerusalem to follow him to Caesarea and to just do the whole thing over again. We're going to have another trial. They're going to say the same stuff they said, and I'm going to have to defend myself from these guys again. So here comes the high priest Ananias, who was probably involved in the plot to kill Paul. Um, so that's not a good starting point. Um, There's some other leaders there, and there's a lawyer, right? Now they've got a lawyer, so things have gotten very bad. Uh, So once the trial starts, this lawyer, Tertullus, he he begins to accuse Paul, right? And that's that's what's happening here. They are the prosecution. Uh, it's, not the, it's not Rome that's accusing Paul. It's the, it's the Jewish religious leaders, and they say, here's what we have. Here's our charge against Paul. And it's pretty basic stuff, right? They, they, he says all this flattery about Governor Felix, even though the Jews hated Felix. He was, they hated him. They got him fired two years after this. So, uh, he says all this stuff about how great he is, most excellent, blah, blah, blah. You're so awesome. We just need a couple minutes of your time. This will go really fast. This guy, Paul, he's the worst. He's a plague. He's a pest. He's infecting the Roman Empire with his seditious ideas. Uh, he stirs up riots everywhere he goes, not just in Jerusalem, all over the Roman Empire. There's all kinds of problems. He's the, the ringleader of this dangerous fringe religious group. And so they're all implicated in this accusation, all Christians. Uh, and Paul here, he, he tried to profane the temple by bringing a Gentile in. No offense, Felix, we know you're a Gentile as well, but you know, can you believe the gall of this guy to bring a Gentile into the temple? Go ahead and ask him yourself. That's how 
Tertullus basically finishes here. You can examine him yourself because you are so excellent and awesome. You'll be able to discern the truth of our accusation very quickly. And all the people who came down, Ananias, the other religious leaders, yes, we agree, we verify that what he has said is true. Now, it's nothing new for Paul to experience opposition and false accusations. This has happened all through his missionary ministry And it's happened all through the history of the church of Jesus, that there's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be accusations that are made. And it's uh, it's something Paul talks about later in 2 Timothy toward the end of his life. He says in uh, chapter 3, verse 12 of uh, 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? You guys, do you want that? And you want to follow Jesus. You want to live a godly life. If that's true of you, you will be persecuted, Paul says. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Paul knows this better than any of us, right? Because he's experienced it again and again. And when we look at Paul, I, I know we've said this before, but Sometimes we think it happened to him so many times he probably got used to it and it didn't bother him that much, but I don't think that's true. That, that just because something happens a lot doesn't mean that it gets easier. Like, you know, if you have some kind of chronic illness, you're not like, well, you know, year seven, it's like, it's fine now, I'm used to it. Like, no, it's still hard. It's still very difficult. So how do we hold fast? How do we endure through opposition, through persecution. And we have to do what Paul is doing here. He remembers, God told me. He promised me that he's not gonna leave me alone, that he's gonna be with me every step of the way. God's in control. God is the sovereign one. And so he knew and we can know that we're never alone in, our pers- in the persecution that we're experiencing in any kind of difficulty that we're experiencing as we follow Jesus because he's always with us and he's always in control. So because God is in control, we can hold fast and endure opposition and we can also hold fast and endure as we witness or as we testify to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So after hearing these accusations that Tertullus, the lawyer, has brought uh, on behalf of the Jews. Governor Felix turns to Paul and just, he just nods at him. I love this little detail. Just like, okay, go ahead. What do you have to say for yourself? These guys made a pretty good case. They also flattered me, which feels really good. So now it's your turn. Why don't you go ahead and say what you're going to say, Paul? And, And again, we've seen Paul do this numerous times to defend his faith but it it helps to notice several things in what he does here. So first, he addresses the accusations that have been brought against him. He, um, you know, these charges that have been brought against him, they don't have any basis in truth. Like everything that has been said is skewed or it's an outright lie or it's an assumption. And so all that stuff You know, when somebody says stuff that's so crazy, you're like, I don't even have to dignify that with a response. Like, it's so ridiculous. I'm not even going to address it. But Paul 
doesn't ignore what's been said. He doesn't belittle them. Oh, man, don't you want to be sarcastic when somebody says something ridiculous? You're like, oh, really? That's what I said, huh? I mean, that's, that's a super lame comeback, but don't do that one. Uh, but he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't belittle the response. He just addresses it head on. Like, okay, let's go through what they said. Um, and one by one, Paul clearly and carefully says, none of this can be proved. It's all based in, it's not true. And so, you know, they, they tried to make a case here, but notice what they didn't do. They didn't bring any proof. They didn't even, uh, you know, the people who actually made these accusations about me stirring up strife all over the Roman Empire, where are they? They're not here. They're not testifying. You're asking for eyewitnesses here. There's a breach of Roman law going on here. So there you go. Paul just addresses it. These people aren't here to accuse me. The rest of the stuff can't be proved. It was all assumptions. And he just says, yeah, here's, here's my response to that. None of it is, is true and can't be proved. And, and we're not going to go through the rest of his response really in great detail. But, but what I want to get to is the heart of what Paul does here. The heart of what he says He comes back again and again. Instead of getting caught up in the details and the false accusations, he says, what's the real issue going on here? Why are the Jews really mad at me? It's because of Jesus. It's because I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's promised rescuer, that he, even though they killed him, that he conquered death, that he was raised from the dead, and I follow him now. That's the issue. That's the problem here. They're trying to get me all caught up in this stuff, but that's not the issue. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures that they say, we all say we believe. And Paul says, we just have a difference of opinion here. It's a religious issue. It's not a Roman law issue. This isn't about sedition or treason or trying to start a revolution. I'm not trying to start a cult or something that's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Just like Jesus, I'm just, I'm trying to follow him. And, and the issue here is about following Jesus. It's not about something else. It's not, it's not some, uh, it's not some government political thing. Everything Paul is doing here, he says, is because the man that the Jews crucified, he did not stay dead. He came out of the grave and he rose in victory. And so our witness, our testimony, the message that we speak as followers of Jesus, it really isn't mainly about our innocence. Right? Don't you feel like you have to defend yourself when there's an accusation? Especially when it's not true. Like your first response is, I have to prove that this isn't true. I have to prove that I'm innocent. And Paul does address that, but he says the real issue here is not whether I'm innocent or not. The real issue is about Jesus. And that's what we should be most concerned with when we're talking about uh, our, our witness, that's the message that we have. The good news is not that we are innocent or that we haven't done something wrong. The good news that we have is Jesus is God's rescuer and that he came to save us from Satan's sin and death. He has rescued us. That's where our salvation comes from. And that means, if that's all true, that, that who Jesus said he was 
is true. That means he's the ultimate authority. That means he's the ultimate judge. He is the king. And so even when we are accused and we're opposed before a court of law or before the court of public opinion, we can do what Paul does here and we can hold fast and we can endure to our calling, which is really to speak about Jesus, to testify to who he is and what he's done for us. So because God is in control, we can hold fast, we can endure opposition, and we can hold fast to our witness, our message, right, that that Jesus is the Son of God, he is the King. And finally, we can also hold fast and endure as we wait, as we wait. Now, I know that none of us like waiting. Waiting is the worst And it can be waiting for small things. It can be waiting for big things. It doesn't matter. Nobody likes waiting for something, right? You order something on Amazon and you're checking it immediately. Like, when is it going to get here? And then you check it like 17 times. Just me, I guess. Uh, Nobody is looking like they understand what I'm talking about here. Um, You know, like, when is it going to get here? Maybe it'll come a day early, uh, and then you're like, you get so mad when it's later than two days. I pay prime shipping, like it should be here immediately. But when God is in control, even our waiting, even our not knowing what is next, our own frustration at our inability to control the future, our waiting is an opportunity to follow Jesus. Our waiting is an opportunity to hold fast to him uh, and to the truth that he is in control. After Paul's trial, there is no verdict again, right? He's done it again, he's gone through the whole thing again, and the same thing happens, which is nothing. He's still in jail. He's still stuck in limbo. The governor, Felix, he recognizes these guys have nothing on Paul. They have nothing that he should be in jail for, but I'm going to keep him in jail anyway. (laughs) Uh, I know he's innocent, but he's going to stay here because I'm a politician, and I don't want to get these Jews any more mad at me than I know they already are. Despite all the flattery, it doesn't matter. I know they don't like me, so if he lets Paul go, the Jewish leaders are going to be angry, and it might be the last straw for him. So he just leaves Paul in prison. He does nothing. So what does Paul do here as he, he waits? He endures, right? He holds fast, and he takes the opportunities that God gives to him as he waits. Luke, he tells us that Felix is married to a Jewish woman. He has some familiarity with Christianity, the way of Jesus. So he, he invites Paul repeatedly Come, come talk to me about Jesus. Come tell me more about Jesus. And as Paul, uh, verse 25 says, as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Man, what a frustrating situation that Paul finds himself in, right? He's given some privileges, right? He can, family, friends, they can come visit him. He's given a lot of leeway. He's a Roman citizen, but he's still in prison. He's still in custody. He's not not in charge of himself. 
and, and Governor Felix has this genuine curiosity about the message of Jesus, but he obviously doesn't like parts of it, and so he rejects part of it, and he says, Paul, just go away, go back to your prison cell till I feel like talking about this again. Um, but, but he keeps calling Paul back to talk about it just repeatedly over and over again, and at the same time, he's hoping that Paul will bribe him because he's like, you know, on principle, I can't just let him go. But if he gives you some money, like, you know, you know that, that would be fine. I could go for that. If he wants to pay me off, then, then we could just, I could make up some excuse. But I'm not going to just do it because it's just, you know, that would be ridiculous. He's got to give me a bag of money for that. And this whole thing just goes on and on for two years. Two years, verse 27 says, Two years of this ridiculousness, just being yanked around, not in control of what's happening, and you know that he knows, the guy who put you there, that you're innocent. It's so obvious, and he's just waiting and waiting and waiting, and at the end of that time period, does Paul get justice? No, Felix gets fired, just like he was afraid of. He gets sent back to Rome. And a new governor is appointed in his place. And all the while, Paul is in prison, just waiting for some kind of answer. Two years. Now, I know that many of you are in some kind of situation that feels like it will never be resolved. And you've been waiting for a long time. You become anxious about it. You think about it while you're laying in bed. It's constantly on your mind. If you're, if you're not occupied with some other thing, that's where your mind goes. And you try to pray about it, but you've already prayed about it so many times. And in your waiting, right, in our waiting, there's this constant temptation to wonder if God is actually in control of that thing. And really, is he just in control of anything? I mean, he seems like he has a lot of influence, but is he in control? Is he really sovereign? And I want to finish by listening to what Jesus says about this worry, this anxiety, this fear that we have. He says in Luke 12, and which of you, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I know that you and I, we feel like the answer to our waiting is for the waiting to be over, right? That's what we want. We want a resolution. But what, what you and I need more than a resolution the end of our waiting is we need a vision of God's care, of his sovereign care, of his, uh, his ruling and reigning in a good way. 
That's what we need, really need, more than we need the resolution, more than we need the waiting to be over. Because if that thing is resolved, what's behind it? It's another thing that you're going to worry about. It's another thing that you want to be resolved. But if we remember that God is in control, if we remember that he's sovereign, then we can face any kind of difficulty. We can endure any kind of waiting. We can hold fast through opposition. We can continue to be faithful as we speak of Jesus, that we're looking for opportunities to talk about his goodness, to talk about his grace, to talk about his sovereignty. And we can trust because he knows what we need. Jesus tells us that. Your father knows what you need. And so he says, instead of worrying about what you need, know your father's taking care of you and and just seek him. Look for him. Go to him with all those worries, all those cares, everything that is weighing you down. Seek him and all that other stuff. It will be taken care of. Let's pray. Father, we all are in great need today of remembering, knowing, believing, trusting that you are in control, that you are sovereign. Would you lift our eyes to see who you are, the beauty and the magnitude and the glory and the greatness of who you are. And when we wonder about your care, would we look to the cross, Jesus? Would we see that the thing that we should be most worried about, our sin, has already been paid for? The greatest burden that we could have never lifted has already been carried for us, Jesus. And we thank you for doing that for us and for being our good king, that we can trust you with everything that we can put all our worries and our cares on you. Thank you that we can continue to respond in worship. And would you just call us into a life of trust, into a life of walking with you. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.